0: sunday night health show podcast tonight on the program dr jason kinderchuk talks about the latest variant and dr john Weisler, cardiologist returns to the show because you had so many questions for him last week about why you don't want to get covid mental health new birth control options and the benefits of doodling the sunday night health show podcast starts now
1: and now maureen's health headline
0: Health officials are monitoring the BA2 sub-variant of the Omicron variant. Uh, just as we are relaxing restrictions and talking about getting rid of vaccine passports, that would be Alberta, in a few months. Joining me on the line to make sense of all this is none other than Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, an assistant professor in medical microbiology and infectious diseases at the University of Manitoba. He is also Canada Research Chair in the Molecular Pathogenesis of Emerging Viruses, and he actually studies viruses. Good evening once again, Dr. Kinderchuk.
2: Good evening, Maureen.
0: Well, another week. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs>
2: Here, what, Here what we
0: are what he can again. Say
2: about it? Yeah, uh, honestly. And, uh,
0: it, it, it is one of these things
2: where, you know, we're, we're, we're still in the thick of this, right? And and I think the, the biggest concern, uh, I think that, that, that certainly myself and, and certainly colleagues of mine that, that I've spoken to over the past few days that I've had is this kind of move towards talking about COVID as if it is done. Um, and that's certainly, I, I think, a very dangerous situation for us to be in because we're not there yet. We're, there's light at the end of the tunnel, I I think. I think it's starting to look certainly better in, in many areas of the world, but we, we've been down this road and we've gotten caught, um, you know, thinking a little bit too more too forward uh, too quickly.
0: Are we cautiously optimistic, would you say? Would, would that be a fair statement versus like the Premier of Alberta who says in two months, we're not going to require vaccine passports anymore?
2: Well, here, here's the, the, the issue with everything, right? So, Remember at the end of Delta, certainly when when Delta was starting to trail down, there was that feeling that Delta had moved uh, and, and certainly was still moving through a large proportion of the population. Um, and I think there was this, you know, this kind of viewpoint that, OK, well, after this, hopefully things will be done and we'll be able to get back to normal. And then Omicron emerged. Omicron literally came came out of nowhere. I don't, I don't think any of us anticipated we would see something of that magnitude that was more transmissible than than what we'd already seen with Delta. Um, that That's the issue that I see us being in is, you know, the, this position of saying, okay, things are starting to look good. Hopefully the next six months, you know, we, we get enough community uh, <clears throat> uh, immunity that, that we at least get some control of this locally. We get maybe some control in healthcare, but that also assumes, that we don't have another variant of concern that that emerges and and certainly one that again exploits those cracks that we have in the system.
0: And that stealth omicron or BA2 is that a concern? Well, so how do
2: I put this in in a way that uh, is, uh, you know, is either, you know, kind of amping up the concern, but also is is not pushing it aside. Listen, BA.2, which is this, you know, kind of sub-lineage of of Omicron that, that we've been hearing about, we don't know much about it, right? So, yes, there looks to be a transmission advantage. It does not look to be. You know, even near the magnitude of what we saw between Delta and Omicron. Um, but, but there is some advantage. We're seeing replacement. Now, that being said, when we look at the increased proportion of BA.2 in, in, in different populations, take South Africa as, as an example, they're seeing an increased proportion of that particular uh, sub-lineage, but cases are still trending downwards. So you can mm-hmm. have a position where, yes, it's taking over, but cases are still going in the right direction and you're just getting replacement without that, that accentuation of, uh, of, you know, uh, health care requirement capacity. So we're watching. We need to figure out more about it quickly, even though we're still trying to figure out Omicron generally. Um, but, but I think people are being a little bit more cautious in regards to how we view this and, and if it's if it's really a concern
0: and now hospitalizations in general are down and the modeled case numbers are down and 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 wastewater surveillance is down i actually don't i don't remember if you and i if you and i have talked about wastewater surveillance but i actually think a lot of people don't realize that there was so much behind the scenes or underground <laughs> um or yeah. in the bowels of the world uh work going on to actually detect and contribute to the modeling of case numbers. Uh, But it looks as though uh, the wastewater surveillance is is looking better. We're having um, evidence of decreased cases through that method of assessing um, Omicron. So, you know, things are looking a bit better. Do we still need to wear masks and distant and have good ventilation, MERV 13 or better, uh, HEPA filters that open the windows? you know, um, or can we relax things?
2: Well, we're so I don't think we're quite there yet with being able to pull back all the safety restrictions, right? So listen, nationally, cases are trending, looks to be in the right direction. Same thing with hospitalizations. The big issue, though, is that when we think about nationally, we're also trying to take all of the entirety of Canada and put that into, you know, one single set of values. Well, we know that, that there are very disparate sections of, of the country. So, you know, Ontario is trailing downwards. Manitoba looks like we're getting close to that. Saskatchewan, not so much. Um, so, when we think about a national average, we have to appreciate that's not necessarily representative of everywhere across the population. So, we still need to be careful because there is still, uh, you know, Omicron burning in, in, in the background in, in many populations. Um, and we have to appreciate that. When we start to pull back the, the the safety reins a little bit on this and, and the safety brakes, um, we've got to do this cautiously. Uh, you know Dr. David Naylor said this perfectly, where, listen, we could get into a position if we pull too many things too quickly, we're right back in the thick of this, and, and then we have to go to you know heavier restrictions to try and get control. If we're cautious and we're slower, um, we will be able to test the waters a little bit to figure out where that balance is between what we can reduce in terms of restrictions and what we may still need to uh, to, to keep implemented.
0: Dr. Jason Kindretchuk is my guest. Dr. Kindretchuk, we'll go to the callers right away. First and foremost, we have Lucy in Burnaby. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Maureen. Hi, Dr. Kindretchuk.
3: I just want to hey, make a, um, oh, sorry. <laughs> A comment and an observation. I was listening to a program a few hours ago on NW, and it was all about COVID and three cases that happened to be intubated and were on the, you know, when they first came into the hospital, they were pretty sick. And they managed to uh, get over that with a lot of help from the hospital, and they were transferred over to Toronto. This is a Toronto case, Ontario. and. Um, and they were transferred over to the t b hospital, West Parker, or, or whatever, which is now the t b hospital and their stories were something that everybody should be looking at or listening to, and those who don 't believe because one case there said he was not going to get the uh, vaccine for his him and his family because he didn 't believe in it, blah blah blah, and uh, now he was so sick, and he 's still working through that, and he 's going to take him a long time to recover. And I thought, you know what, there should be more stories like that. Maybe people would smarten up and, and think, hey, you know, maybe we should Absolutely.
0: Get it. I, I saw those stories. There are months and months, uh, you know, people on ventilators. It takes a long time to recover once you're extubated. And also uh, people who risk getting long COVID who are not getting vaccinated or even who are. You know, it's, yeah. uh, it's so important to be careful. Thank you so much for that, Lucy. Uh, we have uh, Carol on the line from Winnipeg.
3: Oh, hi, Carol. well, hi. Oh, hi, hi. Thanks for taking my call. I was just like, for for bus travel, um, there's a, quite a lot of people on the bus route that I take. They they're talking all the time on their phones, um, and I was just wondering, like, not only like with breathing, there could be uh, COVID contamination, but with them talking, it seems like an extra risk. I was wondering, what do thought- they have their mask on? Most are, some talk through their scarf or some have their scarf down. But yeah, most people are wearing a mask. But still, I'm not sure about how effective the masks are.
0: The masks are, are quite effective uh especially if you up into a kn95 but it's also important to keep your hands away from your face your eyes your nose and your mouth so for example if somebody's pulling their mask down they haven't hand sanitized or washed their hands and then they're pulling it down and then pulling it back up you know they're contaminating their mask um but yeah absolutely there's so many levels of uh so many mitigation strategies and so many levels of that it's what People are, you know, understand it to be around the education and what they're willing to do, uh, quite frankly. And now we have a caller, Gerald, in Vancouver. Hello, Gerald.
2: Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um, so I had some unusual symptoms uh, last week. Not sure if it was COVID or not. I wanted to ask about those, but I also wanted to ask about um, how the the term airborne seems to be used very little. Uh, in the medical community, even though they 're kind of suggesting all these new mask um, suggest, um, protocol i guess mask protocols.
0: And ventilation? Dr. Kinderchuk, did you want to? Yeah. I try to say airborne as much as possible. Go ahead. <laughs> I'll no, let you it's, take it's this It's a great one. comment,
2: right? I think if, if we look back at, uh, you know, at the entirety of this pandemic, there has been, you know, this chasm in between people that, that thought it was droplet versus uh, um, aerosol driven, right? And, and certainly, since at the start of the pandemic, I was very much on the side of, of droplets from what we had seen from other coronaviruses. Now, the data continues to tell us Yes, aerosol you know is, has a massive implication, especially for the the, the variants that that have emerged. Um, we we need to be able to communicate with with the public in a way that is cogent and is transparent and provides information. Um, so I think that's why you're hearing this shift. Um, why there there isn't more messaging just just explicitly talking about it being airborne? I, I don't know, and I don't know if it's partially because there is still this hope that people will continue to do. The other things we've been doing, uh, yes, the hand sanitizers and, and hand sanitation does not help, you know, it, predominantly for for cutting down and uh, curbing transmission for this virus, but it does for a number of other infectious diseases. So, you know, is that part of the impetus is to try to keep people doing all of those things for, for you know, infectious diseases broadly on top of just COVID. But no, it's it's a great point. Can I yeah,
0: quickly... And it's very interesting... Oh, sure, go ahead. I was going to say, can I quickly mention about my symptoms as well, too? Sure.
3: Yeah, sure. so
2: so I had uh, some pretty bad nausea, weakness, and headaches. And those don't, don't seem typical COVID symptoms. And I was wondering if uh, if maybe the new variant or if uh, if that's still a variant of Omicron
0: at all. We, we well, certainly headache heard of was different a things. symptom of Delta. Yeah, go ahead,
2: yeah. Dr. Genshaw. You know, I was going to say, with, with Omicron, there have been differences in symptoms that have been seen, right? We, we have mm-hmm. to keep in mind that when we look at the breadth of symptoms that have been seen, and I'm, I'm not a physician, I'm just a virologist, but when we, when we look at the breadth of of, uh, of responses that we've seen in people and symptoms that we've seen in people, we have to appreciate, yes, there's an, an average symptom that, that has been calculated, but there are also a lot of outliers and a lot of gradients in there. So uh, if, if anything feels off, um, I think that's why people should be getting testing or, or should be getting the, the rapid antigen test to ensure or try to give some confidence that, that they're not infected.
0: I totally agree. I think back to a patient of mine who had severe menstrual cramps. That was her only symptom. She was positive for COVID. And then she became sicker as the days went on. But if you're vaccinated, less burden of disease, fewer symptoms, and, and a shorter course of illness. Dr. Kinderchuk, it's that time again. We got to go. <laughs> but thanks so much. I love having you on. It's so great. It's uh, until pleasure, next Martin. week. Yes. Thank you. We'll see what this week brings. Anyway, good luck. He is an experienced cardiologist, head of cardiology at Lionsgate Hospital in North Vancouver, British Columbia, and the North Shore Heart Center. He is none other than Dr. John Weisler, and I brought him back because last week we couldn't get to all of your text messages, and he's on the line now. Good evening, Dr. Weisler.
1: Good evening, Maureen.
0: How are you doing?
1: I am doing great. Thank you for having me. How are you? Uh,
0: I am doing very well, thank you. I I just had a COVID test, so... (laughs) It's always a bit of a relief, you know. (laughs)
1: Definitely,
0: when you get the the results, it wasn't that I wasn't. I'm routinely tested uh, in some of the work that I do, and so um, it's not that I'm feeling unwell, fortunately. But um, you know, you you just never know, right?
1: That's true. No, it's uh, so prevalent, so widespread. Yeah, they they seem to get gentler. I've done a number over the past, um, you know, few months, and again, not because of symptoms, but because of some of the consulting work that I do. And um, I don't know, it gets easier with time. Maybe I'm not sure.
0: It, you mean easier to to self inflict <laughs> the swab? Exactly. You know, yeah, I, I don't
1: know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm just trying to forget them. I don't know.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yes. I mean, you get used to it after a while, but you never get used to is you know what are those results going to show? You know, you never get. The
2: feeling of you, relief. You just can't.
0: Yeah. Exactly. It does give you that bit of a feeling that on Friday at noon, I was actually <laughs> negative. Exactly. But, you know, two days yep. later, you never know. Um, somebody texted me as to, uh, just quickly, we'll get to, um, I just want to say, first of all, if anyone has a question for Dr. John Weisler, uh, the number to call or text one 9898 That's one Ninety-eight, ninety-eight. Um, I did get a text, what, what do I think of the truck convoy? Probably <laughs> well, because I mentioned it. Um, you know, I, I just don't get it. I'm, I'm glad that it's a very small percentage of, of truckers. But truckers already are required, uh, you know, to ad- adhere to government safety regulations from health checks to electric monitoring, uh, electronic monitoring of their movements. And so it just makes no sense to me that some drivers are claiming that their freedoms are at risk from a vaccination that is meant to protect the public. This is a public health issue. Not only is it to protect the truckers, but it's also their families and and other people as well. And so I I don't understand it Dr. Weisler. What what are your thoughts on people who, are, you know, are going to roll the dice in terms of of getting vaccinated, especially the patient population that you see and not necessarily your patients, but the population that has comorbidities like Advancing age, hypertension, atrial fibrillation, coronary artery disease. They might have a pacemaker. They might be obese. Um, what are your uh, thoughts on that?
3: Yeah,
1: I, I pretty much am the same as you, Marine. You know, um, I, I understand. You know, people wanting to have um, you know control over their bodies and their their health. So I always get that. But the the over the overwhelming you know the arguments for vaccination are you know, so profoundly uh positive, uh, both to protect yourself because you never know if you're gonna be, you know, even even if you're in a low risk, you know, demographic group, you don't know if you're gonna be that low risk, right? Um a lot of people that are uh-huh. you know, that that were sick and had to go into hospital or get intubated with COVID, they probably thought they wouldn't get it either. And then there's also the, you know, um desire to help your fellow citizen so vaccines by no means are they perfect and i don't think they were ever you know claimed to be perfect but they do dramatically protect you and and from from severe illness and help to reduce the chance that you transmit covid you know um, you can still transmit if you're vaccinated but you're infectious for a shorter time there are some trials Mm -hmm. that would say that you've got a much lower viral load so there's the idea of protecting your fellow citizen that you know, maybe, um, you know, has a higher risk uh, health profile with some of those comorbidities that you so nicely mentioned, you know, hypertension and obesity are two really big ones that predict more severe COVID disease. And, you know, you can't predict who you're going to come in contact with and always what will happen.
0: Uh, Absolutely. And, you know, it's also uh, the impact on the hospitals and and the frontline workers in those hospitals i mean nurses and doctors are struggling uh i know that and, and you must see that in the hospital they as do. well you know they're extremely stressed it's 2 years now um it seems to be really no end in sight it's almost they they likely a lot of them might get um post-traumatic stress disorder it's going to take a long time for nurses to get over the the extremely high patient ratios the fact that their colleagues are sick or have have died the fact that they have faced death and dying on a daily basis um there's really uh you know it's been so difficult and yet people who have absolutely no medical or science scientific background, are making these claims and, you know, a vaccine injury. As I've said before, we have many COVID wards in hospitals. Pr- probably every single exactly. hospital in the yep. world has a COVID ward, but nobody has a vaccine injury ward. And and that speaks That's, volumes. Yeah. 100%, um, but hundred
1: percent agree. Yeah.
0: yeah I the, mean, and so they don't yeah, think the about that. Line. Go ahead.
1: Oh, sorry, Maureen. Yeah, I was going to say that the toll on you know the healthcare workers. Um, you know the nurses that go in for twelve hours every day, and you know work long overnight shift and have to work overtime. You know, and then and then the the, the doctors that you know uh, counsel patients as they're dying and try to get them in touch with their loved ones. I mean, this is all you know real. Some people will try to say it's propaganda or something sometimes, but it's it's really not. You know, it's, it's important to you know protect the system and protect each other for sure.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I have a question for you, Dr. Weiss. Um I have another one, but I'll get to this one first. Get A leftover from last week, but this is a current. Hello, doc. I'm currently 57 years of age. At the age of 42, I had a heart attack, which doctors at the time presumed was brought on by my ongoing ECT treatment and various medications. A year later, almost to the day, I had another. At that time they put in two stents, although they said it wasn't cholesterol. It had something to do with collapsing question mark. I've seen the scans and as a layman I can't tell what's damaged on my heart. It does not run in our family. I'm curious if you would agree with those opinions. Yeah, that, I realize this is tough. That's a tough
1: one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's a tough one to know um, mostly with the detail about like collapsing, um what that means. Um ECT or electroconvulsive therapy, which is useful in the treatment of depression and other mental illnesses, um, it sounds very dramatic. Patients are put to sleep and a, a very low dose of electrical activity is then applied to the brain to try and reset the neurons. Um, it sounds very dramatic. It's usually very safe and well tolerated. And it, for some types of depression, it can be quite effective. So we don't usually think of that procedure as being a big risk for causing heart attacks. Hard, hard to mm-hmm. know without knowing more of the particulars of the individual that that, prescri- that gave the, the question. Um, and then he said he had um, he or she had um, two stents implanted a year later. Um, so uh, there'd be kind of speculation on my part, Marine, if it's not cholesterol, but it's collapsing. There are other ways you can have a heart attack other than cholesterol. They're quite a bit rare. You can get spasm of your coronary arteries. Um, there's a rare condition if you have a really thick heart muscle that it can pinch or impinge on the arteries under certain circumstances Um, those are generally pretty uncommon though so hard hard to know um, you know if if there was an absence of um, atherosclerotic if there was an absence of plaque before and the individual's been well treated since the odds of recurrence would hopefully be quite low and and if they can't see the damage on a heart scan it might have been that the heart attack was you know small and and um, wasn't serious hopefully
3: hmm
0: and he he of, said or all, she all said kind of
1: speculation uh, yeah.
0: it's all speculation absolutely but they said i've seen the scans and as a layman i can't tell what's damaged my heart but hopefully your doctor <laughs> can tell yes, what's damaged your heart um so for somebody at age 57 uh who's had this particular history um what and has had stents what what does the advice for somebody who's had stents inserted i at one point i i thought it was that 70 percent of stents failed years ago but have we gotten better at that
1: um they have got better um so uh, stents can you know fail or block up again for for a few different reasons um sometimes you can get a clot that forms and that's often you know we hear a lot in the, the lay press about maybe aspirin doesn't help or aspirin's not beneficial and that applies to like some people that haven't had heart disease before but when you've had heart disease especially with a stent that ongoing aspirin is very important to try and avoid further you know further blockages further heart attacks and it's um it helps to keep the stent from being open so one way stents can block up is a clot and that's often in somebody that stopped their aspirin um you know either rightly or because they had to or or wrongly um but and the other way is you can get a reoccurrence of cholesterol inside the stent so you can get more plaque that occurs either at the edge of the stent or inside the stent. Mm -hmm. And whether you get that, there's a little bit of chance or luck, but a lot of it is down to your um, risk factor control. So how well you look after your cholesterol, your blood pressure, your blood sugar, stop smoking, exercise and control your weight, kind of what we advise everybody to do. But it's especially important if you have that history. And uh, most people with stents, if they do well with that, most will do very well and often do not need another stent for the rest of their life, even at a you know, younger age, like in their in their forties, when the, this uh, individual's first heart attack was.
0: Mm-hmm. I have another question for you, dear Dr. Weiser, Love having you on Maureen's show. Uh, I was diagnosed with hip pain, no known reason, but my blood pressure also has gone up. Could my pain? Could my sorry? Could my elevated blood pressure be the result of the pain in my hip? That's what my doctor told me.
1: So uh, that's a really good question. And the answer is, um, it could be a big part of it. It's it's important to look after your pain is treated and see what your blood pressure is. When we're in pain, it does often trigger a reflex that our pain is higher. So, you know, it's, it's a terrible time. Like if you have to go to the emergency room, for example, because you had a fall or broke your arm, often your blood pressure will be high there. It's a terrible time to, you know, um, decide what your blood pressure is because you're in distress. So being in pain can raise it. Also, some pain-relieving medications can raise your blood pressure. So things like um, what we call the non anti-inflammatories, so ibuprofen, naproxen, drugs like that, which can be very helpful for treating pain, um, but they can really raise your blood pressure. Um, having said that, um, in a lot of patients with high blood pressure that's really high with pain, some patients will have a blood pressure of, say, 180 or something, and when they're in pain, part of it is from the pain, but there's often an underlying you know, high blood pressure as well. So it, it could be true, but it's also important to go back and check when you're feeling well, pain is gone, and see what your blood pressure is.
3: Good
0: okay, question. Okay, and here's and here's another one for you because we mentioned ECT, I believe. Dear okay. Dr. Weisler, I have significant depression and have suffered with this for years. I also had a heart attack when I was 49 years old. I am now 55, and my doctor wants to do ECT on me. Am I at greater risk for having another heart attack because I previously experienced one?
1: So, I think the risk from ECT, if, if any risk is there, it's very small. With ECT, you have, you know, both your treating um, psychiatrist or other physician that's doing the ECT, and you have a usually somebody trained in anesthesia there, whether it's an anesthesiologist or. You know, some in some places it's a family doctor with extra training in anesthesiology. So, the risk of getting a heart attack from ECT is very small, and I don't think it's significantly higher. No, because of um, this individual's previous, you know, cardiac history. Um, in general, people that have had a heart attack are at a slightly higher risk of heart attack in the future. But all the, you know, things we ask you to do, both with lifestyle and you know, exercise, diet, and medications, they help to get rid of most of that risk. So I think if, you know, the individual that asked the question, if they're doing well, they're treated regularly, their numbers are good, their risk from having the ECT should be very small. It's generally a very safe procedure.
0: My guest is Dr. John Weisler. He's a cardiologist, an experienced cardiologist and head of cardiology at Lionsgate Hospital in North Vancouver, British Columbia and the North Shore Heart Center. Uh, We have a couple of callers, Dr. Weisler. We have uh, Willie in Port Moody, British Columbia on the line.
4: Thank you for taking my call i'm a retired nurse i've been out for out out for a little while but my question has to do with at what point do the cardiologists decide an angio is warranted what would be the symptoms or problems that would warrant an angio Because that seems to be there seems to be doctors all over the map on that
1: Yeah, so um, that's a a great question. So an angio, um, for for those who don't know, an angio or angiogram is a minimally invasive procedure where uh, the doctor, who's usually a specially trained cardiologist, puts a little needle in your artery in your wrist or your groin, threads little tubes up to the heart, and squirts dye down the heart arteries, and then they can look at it on a camera and see if there's blockages and then if there's blockages sometimes they'll use a little wire to thread a balloon up there and open it that's angioplasty and they leave behind a metal coil called a stent which holds the artery open so um the procedure is very safe, uh, but there is small risk—about a one in a hundred chance of minor complications, one in a thousand chance of major complications like stroke or tearing the artery. So we do it when we think there's a high likelihood of cardiac disease and that it's likely to help the patient. So the, the angiogram um, often is—it's uh, the diagnostic test of choice, or it's the gold standard if you have chest pain that's concerning for heart disease, um, or if we if we think you're and if we think you're likely to have heart disease and we might be able to help you feel better by opening the artery. That's a big reason to do it. Um th- Often, if we know that you already have heart disease, we know what your pain is from, if we're able to control your pain well with medications, you may not need the angiogram. And then, so when is it appropriate there? It really depends on, you know, the person's preferences, how active they are, how well they feel with medication. Many of the times, too, the angiogram, um, you know, unless you're having a heart attack, the angiogram done on people with chest pain, it doesn't actually improve survival, although it can improve symptoms. So it really depends on... Your situation and the the patient.
0: Okay, thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much. Okay. I also have. Thank you, Willie. Appreciate that. There's Josh is on the line, from Winnipeg. All right. Hi
3: there.
0: <laughs> hi, Josh.
3: Hi. Hi, hi, Doc. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, I was listening, and you were speaking on the relation between myocarditis and vaccinated and unvaccinated patients. And I was just curious about the. You know, you said there was you were less likely to get myocarditis if you were uh, from the vaccine than you were if you just got COVID. But my uh, question is, what are the rates of uh, myocarditis, like in comparison, if you were vaccinated and, and then got COVID? Like in comparison to, you know, being unvaccinated and then or just uh, vac- or vaccinated and getting it that way?
1: Yep. So um if, if I get your question correctly, uh Josh, it's what's your chance of getting myocarditis um from COVID um if you have been vaccinated already versus if you um get COVID but you didn't have the vaccine. Exactly. Um, and and so myocarditis is, is uncommon uh from COVID. It's way more likely from COVID than from You know, actually getting the vaccine, Um, but it's still a relatively uncommon complication. Um, It is, uh, in general, COVID is much milder with uh, in people who are vaccinated. Not a guarantee, but it's a milder disease. The rates of myocarditis do seem to be lower. There was one um, study that I saw out of Israel where it was less than one fifth. So, um, if you had um, COVID and were vaccinated, you had a twenty. You were about um, eighty percent less likely to get myocarditis when you had COVID than if you were, than if you weren't back.
0: Two years into a pandemic and COVID-19 has led to a sharp increase in depression and anxiety. According to a new study, cases of depression rose globally by 28% above pre-pandemic levels and cases of anxiety increased by 26%. Joining me on the line is Dr. Kelly Anderson. She is a family physician at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto She is also the medical director at Felix, a telemedicine company. Good evening, Dr. Anderson. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So many people have suffered uh, and the impact on mental health cannot be overstated. What are some of the reasons that this is problematic and, and why does it continue to exist? I mean, we're in 2022. And, you know, we've gone through a two-year pandemic and so many people are suffering. You know, there's different degrees of suffering, but, but why do you say we have so much suffering in the world with uh, relative to mental health?
5: I think that social isolation has been an incredible driver for anxiety and depression during the pandemic. Uh, and also, I'd say people are much less likely to access health care Um, they may find it difficult to access their family physician or they may not have a family physician. So many people are at home, isolated, experiencing new levels of anxiety and depression,
0: then not getting the help that they need. And and pre-pandemic, Canadians didn't Uh, seek help for their mental health, for anxiety and depression either. And so, in fact, 40% of Canadians, according to some research. But is that number likely much higher today?
5: I think it's certainly higher today. Uh, There's been, you know, there are a lot of pressures on family physicians at, at the moment to not only be looking after their own practices, but also running Covid assessment centers, playing a role in vaccinating. Um, a lot of full scope family physicians work in the emergency department or obstetrics, um, and so perhaps they're you know less accessible to patients than they have been in the past. Patients are more scared to go in person to see their family doctors, or they may feel like mental health is less important to address right now because you know, the medical pressures of the pandemic. So it's kind of the perfect storm for people to not pay attention to their mental
0: health. It it certainly is. And what are some of the other barriers to mental health treatment that continue to exist today? Well, I think
5: many Canadians are embarrassed when they have a mental health struggle. And there's many reasons for that. One is... People can feel like it's their own fault that they're depressed, that there's some kind of lack of mental fortitude. They're seeing mental health, not as, you know, a physical health concern, but something that maybe, you know, they're playing a role in perpetuating. Um, At Felix, we really like to look at mental health as health care. So just as you'd go get your knee examined at your doctor, if something was wrong with your knee, we feel like mental health is something that should be addressed with the same level of openness um, and the same level of access to care. Um,
0: Absolutely. Other, and I want other to talk Other reasons.
5: To oh, go ahead, Maureen. No, no, go ahead. That was some of the other reasons? Um, yeah, I think other people can feel sometimes that they're alone, that, uh, that they're the only ones that have this problem. And that kind of um, magnifies the embarrassment. because They don't feel like it's a common problem, but... Family physicians certainly know that it's incredibly common. Most of the patients that I'm seeing these days, if their visit isn't directly related to mental health,
0: mental health is definitely coming up. And, you know, there still exists such a stigma in mental health today. You make a great point about uh, mental health is equally as important at physical health. So uh, tell me a little bit about Felix, which is uh, a virtual clinic to address mental health issues. Yeah,
5: so Felix is a digital healthcare company, and we connect Canadians with health practitioners to address personal personal health needs like mental health, sexual health, skin care, um, and then we discreetly and reliably deliver medication to people's homes on an ongoing basis, and we recently launched Mental Health Care, where Canadians can access one of our healthcare practitioners to be... Um, you know, assessed for their mental health concerns and also treated on an ongoing basis. And we don't see this as a replacement for family physicians, people accessing family physicians. But for those Canadians that don't have a family doctor, um, you know, up to 5 million Canadians don't have one. This is certainly a complementary way for Canadians
0: to still be able to access care. And is there, does this covered under the healthcare system or, because one of the um, reasons I would imagine for, or one of the barriers for mental health treatment that exists today are financial barriers. As you say, you know, people are thinking about putting food on their table, especially if there's nobody bringing in an income. Um, You know, so is this more affordable for Canadians to access? Yeah, I think what's,
5: What's different about Felix, it's probably one of the most affordable ways to access telemedicine. There is um, an assessment fee that's $40, but that's sort of the only fee that we charge patients. And it's um, often because we use nurse practitioners, which are not covered, you know, in in the provincial funding model um, in most provinces. So there is an initial fee, but then You know, we assess people on a long term basis and they never pay any other fees. What's most important to us is giving people access when they don't have it. Um, You know, I'm thinking about a patient I recently saw who lives in Victoria who has been taking mental health medication for years and recently got quite destabilized because, you know, there were no, her family doctor had retired. There were no uh, walk-in clinics that were accepting patients at the time. And there's a huge shortage of family doctors in Victoria. And, you know, it's incredible to be able to help those people who feel kind of a sense of desperation. There's no other way to access medications that have helped them historically.
0: It's amazing, really. And, you know, even for patients who, you know, would come and see me in my clinical practice, I know sometimes the appointments are only 15 or 20 minutes of follow-up with regard to a specific health issue. But, you know, they have to drive a distance. They have to find parking. Then they have to drive back. You know, they often want an appointment before school lets out. Um, so it's, and, and here you are in Ontario. Felix, I imagine, is has been launched out of Ontario. But you're seeing patients in Victoria, British Columbia, who otherwise would have no choice. I mean, this is such a beauty, such a benefit of digital health clinics such as Felix.
5: Yeah, and we have practitioners living in all the provinces and practicing in those provinces. What's incredible about treating mental health is that it is something that's so amenable to care online. It's not something that typically requires an in-person Physical exam maneuver, you can provide incredibly comprehensive longitudinal care, and people can do it when it's convenient for for them in the comfort of their home. Which often, you know, it's just removing that friction to going out of your house, going somewhere else, unfamiliar, an inconvenient time of day. All of those barriers you mentioned: parking, getting time off work, childcare. Removing all of those barriers makes it more likely that Canadians will access this kind of care.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, the pandemic, as you know, and, and everyone is well aware, has, you know, um, you know, has had a, a dark cast a dark, dark cloud over society in many ways. But there, with any uh, dark cloud, there's always a silver lining and the pandemic a- accelerated Digital transformation in so many ways. People are turning to online services for groceries, clothing, household items. I mean, myself, even today, I went to get something as simple as woolite, but the jug was so big, I didn't want to walk home with it. And so I thought, I'll just go online and get it. You know, we, we just automatically were changing our ways in, in so many ways. And then access to mental health services. Um, As you say, people can be in the privacy of their own home, so their privacy and confidentiality is maintained, and they can share that and build a a relationship uh, online with a healthcare provider. Um, It's just fantastic. And is this the first of its kind telemedicine service to offer these integrated digital mental health services?
5: Yeah. what's You know, we wanted to create an ecosystem where not only are you – being connected with a healthcare practitioner, being followed by that healthcare practitioner, but we're also able to ensure you're getting your medication delivered to your door discreetly, confidentially, and on a regular basis. Like you're not missing your medications, um, and we're integrated with pharmacy to make sure we can do that.
0: And that's so important too because. Many mental health patients uh, or people who needed medication, you know, the weather may impact, you know, you know, there's a storm in the the East right now and and weather may impact their ability to go outside and go and pick up their medication. So, so having a, I guess, a prescription subscription where the meds are delivered um, in confidence to a person's house is so great. So what are some of the mental health disorders, if you will, that Felix can assess and treat? So we fairly
5: exclusively treat anxiety and depression, which is what most Canadians are facing at the moment. Uh-huh. And I would say those are the areas that are very squarely within primary care. Um, like it would be, I think there's confusion amongst people who they need to see for their mental health struggles. So. Do they need to see a psychiatrist? Do they need to see a psychotherapist? Do they need to see a counselor? What's the difference? Can they see their family doctor? What's in their purview of the family doctor versus one of those other specialists? Um, Uh We're trying to make it really clear that anxiety and depression really fall in the realm of primary care. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are other mental health concerns like, you know, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and often those need the expertise and really hands-on guidance of a psychiatrist, which is a physician that's specialized in mental health. Um, those are not the types of things that we address online just because it's not safe. And safety is really at the core of what we're trying to do with Felix.
0: Well, it's, it's life-saving telemedicine, if you ask me, because your mental health is equally as important, if not more, than your physical health and the two or so Closely related. How can people uh, find out more about Felix?
5: Uh, well, you can visit you.ca and the website's incredibly intuitive and connect you. You know, which, whichever whichever personal health concern you're having, you can take a look at what we're offering, and we're happy to get you connected with one of our healthcare practitioners.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this information. So uh, thanks for joining me, Dr. Anderson. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. In addition to preventing pregnancy, some contraceptives provide benefits such as more predictable, lighter menstrual cycles, a decreased risk of sexually transmitted infections, or a reduction in the risk of some cancers, if these benefits are important to you. I I hope you'll stay tuned. Dr. Renee Hall, Medical Director of Kelowna General Women's Services Clinic and Clinical Associate Professor at the University of British Columbia, is here on the line to talk about the firsthand importance of the expansion and access to various contraceptions, such as a new one that she's going to tell us about called Nexplanon. Good evening, Dr. Hall. How are you? Good evening. I'm great. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for asking. So what is Nexplanon? How does it work? And why is it important to add this to the existing group of contraceptive options for women?
4: Well, Nexplanon, we're very excited to finally have it in Canada because it's been in 110 countries. So it's about time we get it here as well. And it's a four centimeter by two millimeter little rod. And you slip it under the skin of your arm, almost like you're getting your ear pierced, and it sits for three years. And it sits in the classification of birth control we call long-acting reversible contraceptives. So the ones that sit and set and forget. You just put them in and don't worry about it for the whole time you have them.
3: Well, that's amazing.
4: Yeah, it's great. And this particular one, the way it works is it stops the release of the egg that comes every month from your ovaries. And it also helps to um, decrease the sperm coming in by making your mucus and your cervix thicker. So it has a couple of mechanisms in action, which makes it super effective. Literally, we're competing with vasectomy on this one.
0: So very different from the oral contraceptive pill, but I would imagine you need a prescription for this? You
4: do, and it's a doctor who puts it in for you. But as I mentioned, it's very quick in with the insertion. It literally goes in like a, with a little device, almost the way that an earring would go into your ear. It's a quick procedure, and you keep a Band-Aid on for a couple of days. It works after seven days, and you're good to go for three full years.
0: That That is fantastic. And now, is this an expensive option for people who are interested in this?
4: It can be. So... Uh, It costs $285 for the pharmacy, and then the pharmacy adds their fee on top of it. So far, we've found that many people have extended health coverage for it. But there was this gap for those who couldn't afford it and who don't have extended health care. And that's why we're so excited about this announcement uh, that it's being covered by PharmaCare in British Columbia.
0: And and is it covered by uh, other uh, PharmaCares across the country?
4: It's starting to be, yes. So in uh, a couple of other provinces as well, in Ontario and Quebec, it's being covered. So slowly but surely, uh, it's being picked up by each of the provinces.
0: And why is it important for women to have uh, oral contraceptive options, a a variety of different ones?
4: Yeah, there isn't really a one-size-fits-all option. And if you think about it, we've got An average of 1.66 children that Canadian families have. Let's say two children. I don't know what 0.66 of a child is. (laughs) And you try try for an average of a year. It's about 85% of couples are pregnant after a year. So that's two years trying, two years pregnant. That's four years of your life where you're pregnant or trying. And the other 30 or so years of having your period that you're trying not to get pregnant. So it's a long relationship that we have with contraception, and we're so different in our bodies and what our needs are. It's really important to have many different options available to find one that we can have this long-term good relationship with and that's effective and easy to use. And that's what makes it so different from birth control pills as well and some of the other options like ring and patch. Is that it's The next one on is, um, as I mentioned, that set it and forget it sort of a, an option. Some people find it difficult to take something every single day and find it difficult to adhere to it, and, and that can increase unintended
0: pregnancy. Absolutely. And uh, speaking of unintended pregnancy or unplanned pregnancy, um, how many unplanned pregnancies are in, are there in Canada? And, and also I want to talk a little bit about why that is such an issue for so many women, how that impacts their lives.
4: Yeah, I... I think it's a surprise to people how uh, big of an issue unintended pregnancy is uh, within public health still because I think there's so much stigma around discussing unintended pregnancy or ending a pregnancy, or termination, or abortion, that I don't know that even within um, the medical fields that people are aware of how common it is. And right now, it's at about 40% of everyone who becomes pregnant was uh, not intended to be pregnant. So that's a huge number of people. And we have one in three Canadian women who are having an abortion by the time they reach menopause. And that's data coming from BC, in fact, from a, a colleague of mine here. And so uh, we can certainly do better. And the way we can do better is by providing access to really effective contraception, uh, like the next one on, for example.
0: Totally. I as am stunned at those numbers. Those are shocking numbers. It-
4: it's, it's huge and, uh, it's, um, people are surprised that, you know, I'm doing 40, 50 abortions a week still. And I always try to, uh, improve contraceptive counseling, uh, among physicians and do a lot of teaching with that as well. Cause I think it's so important for us to do our best to get information to people so that they, uh, can pick the, option that's the very best for them because what happens when you have an unintended pregnancy uh, there is quite a bit, big impact as you mentioned. First thing when people are holding a, a positive pregnancy test when they weren't expecting to have a positive pregnancy test is the shock and the surprise. And we have people who go through huge turmoil, t- turmoil trying to decide whether to continue their pregnancy or not. Some don't. Some it's an easy decision, but some it's a lot. It can be turmoil for them within themselves, turmoil within their relationships, turmoil within their families. And then if they do decide to end their pregnancy, there's a lot of anxiety and fear around this medical procedure they weren't expecting to have to do. And although it is a quick and simple and easy procedure with very low complication rates, it still can be traumatic to go through this whole unintended pregnancy experience for people when they end the pregnancy. For those who continue, that's a whole other story.
0: Absolutely.
4: (laughs) Right? They... With unintended pregnancy for those who continue their pregnancies, we actually have a lot of data about that and those um, people tend to be at the extremes of reproductive age, so younger and older um, tend to be the ones that have the most unintended pregnancies. The younger ones, the issue there is it has such an impact because people can't finish their education and get the jobs that they were planning to and affects their socioeconomic status, which we know affects the child's um, health uh, indicators if uh, people are growing up in poverty. And interestingly, it's not just the person carrying the pregnancy to term, it's their partner as well. So both of them, through the statistics, have shown that their lives are affected by um, unintended pregnancy and it decreases their socioeconomic status. Yes, at the other end, if you're right, if you're older, then you have the issue of medical complications related to pregnancy uh, and increased miscarriage and those kind of things. So unintended pregnancy can have a huge uh, impact not just on the individual but on society and even globally, if you think about population and climate.
0: Oh, for sure. So uh, so Nexplanon sounds like a great option. Who would be a candidate for uh, using Nexplanon?
4: Basically, anybody who doesn't want to be um, pregnant. And the nice thing about Nexplanon is it's a progestin-only birth control, and there's very few people who medically are not allowed to have uh, progesterone. So, but there are quite a few with the pill who can't take estrogen. People with migraines with aura or have clotting disorders or things like that. Um, but we're not so limited with the progesterone only. There's some people, we, we've been pushing the long-acting reversible contraceptives for a long time as a first-choice option for people, um, but there's some people who do not feel comfortable with anything going into their uterus and or they've had a history of trauma or just the idea of that doesn't sit well with them. So this is a nice away-from-the-uterus option. It's a nice progesterone-only option for those who can't take estrogen and a super effective one as well.
0: And if somebody decides to, uh, that they want to, Get pregnant? Is it easy enough to remove?
4: Yeah, so you can just pop it out. They come in, and you can get pregnant. You can ovulate as early as seven to fourteen days after we take it out. So easily reversible, and that's a key too because people don't want to have problems getting pregnant after getting it out.
0: That certainly is. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight and explaining all of this to our listeners. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's great information, and uh, I hope there's some women out there who are listening and. Uh, Uh, learning. So thanks again, Dr. Hall.
4: My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: When we talk a lot about mental health on the program and we think medications or exercise or good nutrition or getting adequate sleep, cutting down on the alcohol, substance use and abuse, those kinds of things, we... We also think about respond versus react. So there's been lots of focus on that, but there's one thing that I know 100% I have not covered in the last nine and a half years. (laughs) And I was interested to uh, see this uh, in my little research about life in general. Um, And it's something that you might not think could be beneficial for cognitive health, mental health, and just quality of life basically, and, and also stress relief. I bet you're dying to know what it is but uh you know it's something that you probably did when you were in school in probably elementary school maybe you did it in high school but you probably didn't give much thought to doing it or maybe you even got in trouble for doing it but uh if you've ever caught yourself doodling in a class or in a meeting or a lecture uh you know what you might think that somebody that you're that you're just distracted or that you're not paying attention or that your child is a dawdler if they're doing that however fear not recent research seems to disprove these tags which i like i'm a little bit of a doodler i won the penmanship uh, prize in grade three <laughs> i'd never win it now i in fact people comment on how bad my penmanship is but it's sort of doodling i was actually taught to um I was actually taught penmanship in a very different way than than people typically are. And there was a lot of practice in terms of circles and lines up and down. And and so that was um, why I had such beautiful at the time penmanship or at least amongst uh, amongst a classroom of of eight-year-olds um but now in fact it's so bad my um bank made me do my signature all over again because it was becoming so bad um but i i do doodle i have a tendency to doodle and i and i go back to those circles that i did um because i have zero artistic talent whatsoever but i do go back to those circles that i would do or the um, up and down lines with the little flare at the beginning and the end. But um, you know what? There are a number of psychological and mental benefits to doodling that, you know, you are obvious or that you gain when you roam free on a page from time to time and some people doodle beautifully i'm not one of those people Um, but doodling is actually linked to improved focus and a greater retention of information you know which i wish i'd known when my uh son was in uh grade four i think it was i mean he's very artistic um but you know he can draw anything and he would doodle and he would draw these elaborate uh, drawings with a pen and and he would get in trouble for it, quite frankly. And, and I have to say, I was like, hey, this is pretty good. <laughs> um, is he really getting uh, in trouble for this? I guess he should be paying attention. But you know what? Maybe it was more beneficial for him than we thought. In fact, doodling has been scientifically proven to improve the retention of information. So it helps with your memory and who doesn't want to improve their memory, especially as they age. It also helps with focus and concentration on the task at hand. That was one of my son's issues at that time. Um, He couldn't focus. I remember them actually writing that in his report card, wasn't able to focus on the task at hand. Ha, what my child, you've gotta be kidding me. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, <laughs> anyhow, um, you know we, you know, especially the firstborn, we're like, no, they're perfect in every single way. Isn't he gifted? Didn't you mean gifted? Anyway, uh, but this, this is very important. So this is something that I think we can perhaps recommend to people as they age. Um, and there, there have actually been research studies done on this. There were forty participants, so they not not too many, but they were asked to listen to an intentionally rambling voicemail uh, during the listen listening session, half of them, and half of the participants doodled while the other half did not. And then all were unaware of a memory test succeeding the uh, listening sessions from which the doodlers emerged triumphant, recalling 29% more information than the non-doodlers. Now, correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation, so take it with a little bit of grain of salt, but you know what? it doesn't hurt. It's not going to hurt you to doodle and just check it out. It's also been linked to concentration. And that was also noted in this particular study that was done by psychologist Jackie Andrade. And it went on to explore the relationship between listening and the act of doodling. And the study found that doodling fires up the brain's executive resources, which is a term used to define You know the cognitive processes that allow us to multitask, concentrate, and to plan. You know those executive functions, as though you're running a little company in your head. Um, So doodling keeps the mind grounded in long meetings or classes instead of running astray to daydream about uh, whatever it is—something where you want to go for dinner or a vacation or whatever. And you know, doodling can also act as a stress relief and who doesn't need a stress relief these days Um, it's it's so important so many people find that they're under stress so it might be something to add to the the journal if you're keeping a daily journal about life and what it's how it's impacting you you might want to just doodle a little bit on every other page um You know, also doodling can be used to glue together that constant narrative we run in our minds to make sense of our lives. You know what I mean? You know, doodling can help realign purpose and focus if we're feeling particularly lost or aimless and that's how it reduces stress. So again, not gonna hurt you, give it a try. See if you're less stressed. It also keeps us in the present moment. We hear that so much, be in the present. That's all you've got and now it's gone. Um, you know, some journalists actually use doodling uh, as an exercise to contextualize the mood of a certain situation that they need to report on more faithfully or recall personalities of people that they are interviewing. And, and it keeps us in the present moment. It certainly does. You're really highly focused when you're doodling. I, I, I promise you, I'm going to go back to doodling. <laughs> I, I'm going to actually be mindful of when I doodle because I am certain that I definitely doodle. Um, but, you know, so it's very similar to mindfulness and mindfulness is very important in terms of peace of mind and happiness in life. And doodling can, of course, enhance creativity. You know, engaging the doodler inside is an excellent way to fire up that creativity. So when you get yourself in a, in a rut um, at work, you know how you're just like, I can't really go on, I'm trying to write this report or whatever. Uh, it can actually activate your creative mind and, and fuel your escape, so it's also enjoyable. I mean, there is some pleasure in it. There's some other activities that are far more pleasurable, but you know, I do find that there is um, pleasure in doodling, and especially if it opens up that creativity. So, so there you have it. The next time you get accused of slacking off in a meetle in a meeting, um, especially if you are mid-doodle. Uh, you know, you have some awesome benefits to counteract the the argument and, uh, you know, hopefully some ground to recruit some new doodlers along the way. Anyway, it's something to, you know, you might try it yourself and then actually, you know, offer that advice to a friend or or a lover or whatever. Anyway, uh, hopefully we have some, uh, we've increased the amount of Canadian doodlers out there. Well, thank you so much uh, for listening to me go on. Uh, maybe you were doodling while I was going on and on. Anyway, uh, thanks so much and uh, stay with me. I'm Maureen McGrath and this is the Sunday Night Health Show. You never know what's coming up next. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have Have a happy and healthy week.